Well, good morning and welcome to Rest in Bible Church. My name is Jim Supp. I'm one of the pastors on our staff team here. Before we get started today, I just wanted to say a word of thanks to the many of you. I've heard from so many of you since the announcement was made two weeks ago that in January I'll be taking the helm uh, as senior teaching pastor here at the church. And I have been so blessed by your support and your comments and emails and stopping me in the hall or whatever it happens to be. I've had several people who say, you know, Jim, we're behind you. We really, we really got your back. I'm not sure why my back needs to be gotten just yet, but I'm glad to know that, that, we've, that we've got that, and I'm encouraged. Well, we are in a nine-part series. This is week three, and the series is entitled All Things New, Living as a Child of God. The first two weeks, Pastor Mike, he preached. The first week, he spoke on our new identity in Christ. And you understand how easy it is for us to seek to gain our identity in all kinds of things in life instead of in Christ. And if we are going to live a new life as a child of God, we need to recognize that our identity is in him. Week two, he talked about the fact that this identity, this new identity means that we now live under a new authority, that's Jesus, with a new purpose, which is to love each other and bring the truth of Christ to the world. He mentioned last week that we're going to start this week by talking about that this new life, all things new, living as a child of God, means that we're part of a new family. To give it a little context, I want to talk to you a little bit just briefly about kind of the paradigm that we think through as it relates to living these things out for Christ. So you know our our mission statement here at Reston Bible Church is to know Christ and to make him known. And over the last couple of years, our pastors have talked about what exactly does that mean? How do we flesh that out? And we've come up with a paradigm that we hope that you will begin to consider and articulate and internalize. And it's this, that as we know Christ and seek to make him known, we are to gather together in biblical community. We are to grow in our walk with Christ. We are to give back with our time, our talents, and our treasure. And then we are to go into the world with the message of Christ, all for the glory of God. So it's our 5G network right? Come on. That's funny, right? Okay. So it's a little cheesy, but it works, right? So we are to gather, we're to grow, we're to give back, and then we're to go out into the world. And today and next week, we are going to be speaking specifically about the gather. We're going to talk about how is it that we gather? Why do we do this? As in all things new, we live this life as children of God. Now, I have to tell you, there has never been a time, from my perspective, in all of human history, where the gather element of life has been compromised, has been attacked, as we have seen in the last year and a half. Globally. Globally. You see, whatever God designs for good is something that the enemy is going to attack, and he has. And he has. The infrastructure of our global community has been fractured. Inside of every church in America, there are these factions. Some people are like, I am not going to meet unless we meet by Zoom. Other people are like, I'm not going to meet by Zoom ever again as long as I live. And shepherd group leaders are small group leaders are struggling with people who fit into both camps inside their group. How do we manage that? 
Do I get the vaccine? Do I not get the vaccine? Do we wear masks? Do we not wear masks? How do I feel about it if you do or don't? Having been a pastor in the local community and being in charge of community, I see the importance and I see the difficulty when it is fractured. Before March 2020, the Shepherd Group Ministry, our small group ministry, had about almost 750 people in it. About half of the population of Reston Bible Church adult population. Now, a year and a half later, we have in the mid-500s, a lot of people have left community during this time. I've had the opportunity to know a lot of people in the community. I have a good friend who is the director of Laws, Loudon Abuse Women's Shelter. And she tells me that domestic violence is through the roof since the start of COVID. And we could go on and on and on talking about the impact of the fracture of community because what we have faced. We are going to do four things over the next two weeks. The first one we're going to do primarily today and the other three will be next week. The first one is that we are going to talk today about a theology of gathering. What does the Bible say about this? Then we're going to talk about the mandate to gather. The Bible tells us that we ought to do it. We're going to mention it today and we're going to pick it up next week. Then we're going to talk about the hindrances to gathering. We already know what some of them are. And then we're going to talk about solutions for gathering. So this is our template for the next two weeks. Today we're going to focus overwhelmingly on the theology behind gathering. And we're going to take us all the way back to the beginning, to creation. Because creation shows us, number one, the first thing we're looking at today is that creation shows us the primacy of relationships. The reality is that God himself, in a way that we don't understand, God exists in internal relationship. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is our first hint, right here in the first two verses of the whole Bible, that there is this notion that we will see fleshed out much more clearly in the New Testament of the relational element of God, which is the Trinity. God exists in relationship. And then number two, God created us to be in relationship. Foundationally, that's what it's all about. Genesis 126, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And when we talk about the image of God, we talk about that, that we are emotional and volitional and intellectual. And often in the conversation about what it means to be in the image of God, often what's forgotten is the relational element of the image of God. Because he created them male and female, it says. The institution of marriage was the first thing God created. It's the only thing that he created before the fall. I'm going to say something here that is going to sound heretical. Do I have your attention? But it's really, really important. Genesis 2.18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. God is all-sufficient. God provides everything that we need. And yet from the very beginning, God recognized that there was something that he could not do. 
<gasps> That's the heresy part. There was something that God could not do. So God filled in the gap by creating the helper for him. God created a human relationship for him. And we have been designed to live in relationship, that being the foundation, but beyond that, any healthy marriage knows that we need other people around us. It's not exclusively that. It's perhaps primarily that. But beyond that, we all need a multiplicity of relationships. I have worked with many people over the years as a pastor who have come to me with the burden of sin. They had sinned. They confessed it to God. They knew they were forgiven, but they couldn't activate the forgiveness, if you will. They were still carrying a burden. And then sitting in my office, across from me, talking to me, confessing that, not that I can release them from that, not that I have any power as a pastor or as a man or anything to, to, to forgive them, but to only reaffirm what the Bible says is true. And when I say, yes, God forgives you, you need to be free to see a release because a human being affirmed what God had already said is true. Human relationships play a critical role in often the activation of the truth of God's word. Stuff that we know up here, that we need to experience down here, that often occurs in the human dynamic. My son Adam, he's 16, soon to be 17, he's a junior in high school. He had had two very, very difficult years at, uh, in public high school, and we kind of scraped our pennies together. And for the first year, he's in private Christian school at Trinity Christian in Fairfax. He's got a long day. He leaves the, house, leaves the house at 7.15 in the morning. He gets home at 6.15 in the evening, best case scenario, after cross country, and he's exhausted. It's more academically rigorous than he's at what he's ever faced before, and he's often very tired. And usually he is in a very good place in spite of all of that. The other day he, he came home. He was not in a good place. And I said, you okay? And he, goes, and he says, yup, which means it's a sure sign that he's not okay. And he kind of went up into his room and shut the door and like, okay, okay, give him some space. And a little while later, he, he texted, he apologized, and he said, I've been praying so hard, and God is giving me peace. And I texted him back, do any of you text other people in your own home? Like, isn't that just like, you're like, come on, people. So I, I texted him back. And I said, I'm glad you're pursuing the Lord with it, but let me remind you that talking it out with a human helps too. <laughs> human relationships, we were designed for them with God first and then with each other. And that is the underlying underpinning of why it is that we gather in the body of Christ. The theological element that it starts at creation, God exists in relationship, and we were created for relationship. Now let's take it into the New Testament. Take it into the New Testament. In Matthew 22, a man comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend 
all the law and the prophets. Everything that I have ever said, everything that's ever been put into print, everything that we talk about is summed up in these two things, love me and love each other, which can only happen when we're together. Now in the New Testament, there are two metaphors that illustrate the importance of gathering. Two metaphors about the what it means for us to be together as God has designed. The first is that we are his temple. 1 Corinthians 6. First, individually, it says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This is in the singular. So this is speaking to you as the individual believer that you individually, personally, God dwells in you in a way that we don't understand. The Holy Spirit, when you accept Jesus as your Savior, occupies residency within you. But for the purposes of today, I want to move forward to talk about what it means for us as the body of Christ, okay, to be his temple. Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows up into a holy, here it is, a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are now being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. Now it's important for you and for me to understand, as with many illustrations, many metaphors in the Bible, we have, we've often, uh, it's, it's, a, it's lost to us. Because most of us didn't grow up on a farm when all the agricultural metaphors and illustrations in the Bible sometimes are hard for us to understand. If you grew up on a farm, you're like, I totally get that. The idea of the temple is lost on us for two reasons. One is that the temple was magnificent. It was magnificent. And it was where God dwelt those two reasons. We don't understand that. Going to a place where God uniquely manifested himself in the temple, we don't have a category for that. That's not the way we think today. We're going to go up to Jerusalem where God is. And it was magnificent. The temple was 150 to 180 feet tall. That's about 13 to 15 stories. Do you understand that apart from palaces and this sort of thing that most people never saw in their entire life, the temple, there were no building structures in the average town more than maybe two stories. Most people lived in very humble structures. We are used to, in our day and age, the magnificence of structures. The idea that God dwelled in this magnificent structure, ornate and beautiful, that we came to see. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you see the stairs, the southern steps walking up to the Temple Mount where people would come with this magnificent structure. God is saying that no more do I dwell 
in a magnificent building. You are my temple. You, you are my magnificent dwelling place. We've just passed 9-11. And the Twin Towers were the picture of magnificence in our day and age. It was the representative of the strength of the financial element of America. And we all remember, those of us who are over 20, 25, remember when that second plane hit that tower and then later on as these magnificent structures 1,368 feet tall, 110 stories each. I mean, it's a magnificent feat of engineering that they, never, that they didn't fall just under their own weight, in my mind. And so for you and for me, that God says of us, no, 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 you, you are my magnificent structure in which I now live. And because of that, when we gather the fruition, the full fruit of what it means to be his dwelling place comes to be. The second metaphor, if the metaphor of the temple is about his dwelling, the second metaphor is about his instrument, that which he uses, and that is the metaphor of the body. It's the metaphor of the physical human body. Romans 12 says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Ephesians 4, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body because we have a purpose. This is his use for us. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. Everybody has a head. And that's Christ from whom the whole body, this is my purpose, this is my use for you, is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You are my temple. You are where I dwell. You are my body, used for my purposes, for itself, the body, and in this world. Ephesians 4.15 in the NIV says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow up to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. And from a little baby on to adulthood, every part of our body has its role so that on the journey we mature into all that we were meant to be. Slays out the beautiful foundation of the reality that every single part has its place. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Pastor, I I, I don't know. I I have something for you. This is going to trip you up. This is going to stump you. 
I think that I am the appendix in the body of Christ. The only time you know any, hear anything about the appendix is when it needs to come out by emergency surgery because it's a problem. Don't press the metaphor. All metaphors break down at a certain point. The point is this. The body is an incredibly crafted organism. And every part does its job for the benefit of the whole to the glory of God. Maturity can only occur in a relational community. I don't know if you've ever been to a monastery. Most people in a typical evangelical community would probably not have been to a monastery. I've been to a monastery several times. They generally hold wonderful two, three-day retreats where you can go in silence and just spend some time with the Lord, and I commend it to you. But I also submit to you that if I chose to go to a monastery and live there for the next 20 years and study God's word, that I would come out with a lot of knowledge and not any particular maturity greater than I have today. Because maturity occurs. I cannot learn patience unless I have people in my life. The command to bear with one another, to love one another, to forgive one another, to whatever one another you pick is what produces maturity. Just go through the fruit of the Spirit that we talked about several weeks ago and you pick me out one, right? Just pick one out that you can do just in isolation for very long. You can't do it. You can't do it. It's God's design. I'm going to read a passage out of 1 Corinthians 12. It's a little long, bear with me, but every single word. We could spend three weeks just in the chapter, 1 Corinthians 12, because it speaks so powerfully about what we're talking about today. Starting in verse 12. It says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. And some of you say that to yourselves, because I'm not that, I really don't have a place. We'll get there in a minute. Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Not again to the, the head, to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers All suffer together. If one member is honored, 
All rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And as we wrap up today, I want to give you four thoughts about what the point is regarding why we gather related to these passages. And the first one is this. The point is that Christ-likeness occurs in community, and so we gather. We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. As iron sharpens iron, so one man or one woman sharpens another. And we could go on and on about a variety of scriptures that tell us That becoming like Christ, which is our destination, Romans 8 says that you were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ if you are a believer. That's your your destiny. How does that happen? In the body of Christ. As we walk together, as we encourage each other, as we confront each other, whatever it might be. I moved to Washington, D.C. in 1992. And when I moved here, I was part of what I'll call a discipleship house. It's a long story. Uh, But in short, I lived for several years in a home with anywhere over that time period from 15 to 25 young men. I didn't get any uggs or o's or, or moans. or It's like, that's a lot of guys in one house. And every Monday night, we had a house meeting. And part of it was to do business, you know, making sure people were making their beds and who was cooking dinner on Monday night and Tuesday night and all of that because we had a lot to navigate, a lot of organization related to just how we lived together. But then one thing that we did is we would go around the circle and every guy had to look at every other guy and say, I'm okay with you. I'm okay with you. I mean, the point is that if, if I wasn't okay with someone, I had one week to figure it out or it was, it was a come to Jesus meeting with everybody. And I, had a couple of, I would have a couple of options. We could work it out right there. We could say, can, can you step outside with me and we can chat? Or I can say, can you step outside with me so we can chat? And can you come too? Because this could be difficult. And we had some intensity going on there. We had some... Rough edges being knocked off from time to time. And the guy who ran the house, his name was Jeff, he would say to me, he'd go, Jim, you know, I really love you. Is there anything I can do for you? And I'd had friends up to that point, but I had not experienced this up to that point. And ultimately, I looked back at him and I said, Jeff, you know, if you really want to do something for me, you know what you can do for me? You can stop telling me that you love me and you can stop asking me what you can do for me. That's what you can do for me. If you want to do something for me, that's what you can do for me. And Jeff was not deterred. He just kept leaning into my life and leaning into my life. And it was during that season that I learned what it is to have people, men, in my life for my own good and for the good of the body. Christ-likeness occurs in community. So we gather. So we gather. Number two, Christ-likeness occurs in community, but also we need to understand from these passages that every single one of us belongs in the body of Christ. So we gather. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. All were made to drink of one spirit. 
Don't let anyone ever tell you that the Apostle Paul never spoke to culture and politics because he does it right here. If you remember back to our series in Colossians where we talked about slaves and masters, to look at people and say, you free man and you slave man are equal in Jesus took the entire first century culture and political structure and dumped it on its head. That's what it did. It said, everyone has a place. And some of you, you're walking through life, you're a believer in Jesus, and you know what your place is in the body of Christ. You know that you belong. You know that you fit and are important. And you are living that out. And there are some of you, whether it's because of what's happened in your life to you or whether it's because of something that you've done in your life that you know theoretically that you're forgiven but is still a roadblock to what God has for you. You're not sure you belong in the body of Christ in spite of having prayed the prayer once, twice, maybe ten times. And if that's you today, I just want to affirm what God's word said is true. That if you have given your life to Jesus and you have accepted his payment on the cross for you, you've set aside your human effort for gaining favor in God's eyes and you said, I need a savior and that's Jesus who died for me, then you have a place in the body of Christ. You belong. You belong. My wife Sharon and I have gotten into watching a, a couple of movies that have really touched us lately. You know, we have all of this race struggle going on in our, in our world, and it's, it's so hard. But we've chosen, we, we watched uh, the movie Harriet, about Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad, and if you haven't seen it, I commend it to you. It's an amazing movie. And just the other night, we watched a movie called 12 Years a Slave. This one I hesitate to recommend to you. It's, it's rough. It's very difficult. It takes a strong stomach. There is nudity in it because you understand that when slaves were paraded out in front for, to be re- reviewed for purchase, they were often stripped naked so that they could be fully observed for what they have to offer. It's rough. And this man, Solomon Northup, was born a free man in New York, grew up, was well-educated, played the violin, had a family, lived in a house, a beautiful house. And he was duped by a couple of businessmen. He was gotten drunk and then sold into slavery and spent 12 years in slavery in the South until he was able to get word out and he was able to be rescued. I say that to create a picture for you in your mind about what it would mean to take a slave and a free man next to each other and have Paul say right here, you both have an important place. You both belong because of Jesus. And every single person in this room, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, if you're a follower of Jesus, you belong in this body.
Number three, not only has Christ's likeness occurred, occurs in community and that's why we gather, not only do we recognize that everyone belongs and that's why we gather, we recognize that God decides where you fit. God decides where you fit. 1 Corinthians 12, 18 says, but as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chooses, as he chose. Not sure what part you play in the body of Christ? I have to tell you it's an important part. And you should figure out what it is. You should ask that question. Ask that question of God. Ask that question of the people around you. Because if you don't know what it is, you need to figure it out. Because it's important. Because there are no dismembered body parts in the, in, in the body of Christ. You know, it's not like the Adams family with thing running around. You know, it's, it doesn't, it's not like that. Does anyone know who, know the name uh, Mordecai Ham? Does anyone know who Mordecai Ham is? Only the guy in the back who ordered in the first service, okay. Does anyone know who Billy Graham is? Oh, some of you are like, I'm not raising my hand no matter what he says, okay. <laughs> are you breathing? No, it's just, all right. Mordecai Ham is the man, the preacher, who led Billy Graham to Christ. And God chose for Mordecai Ham to live in obscurity, but to lead the man who would lead thousands to Christ, who would sit with presidents and kings and queens as a representative for Jesus, We don't get to decide what role we play. But I have a sneaking suspicion that God had some really good stuff to say to Mordecai when he got to heaven because of the strategic role that he played in God's plan for the world. And I'm sure that Mordecai at this point is pretty okay with the fact that you didn't know who he is today. See, many of us gather because we've believed that we've got, we gather to receive rather than what we can contribute. And I hope at minimum today, you walk through the doors of this building with the hope that you would contribute, if nothing else, in worship. That through our worship together, you were a contributing member to honoring and lifting up and praising God. But it's also my prayer that you would sort through how God wants you to actively contribute in the ways that he has wired you to beyond just being part of the corporate body. My daughter Natalie is a freshman at uh, Liberty University. And one of the things that she loves so far about being a freshman is going to convocation which is their enormous, huge chapel in this arena with thousands and thousands and thousands of kids worshiping Jesus. And this past week, there was an evangelist by the name of Jay Louder. Six foot five, skinny as a rail. I'd never heard of him before in my life. And she's like, Dad, you, Dad, you, have, to, you have to watch this guy. And so I logged on. You can watch it kind of recorded later. Jay Louder grew up in a Christian home. But he would tell you by the time he was 20, he realized he was not a believer. 
He went to Sunday school, the whole nine yards. He knew all the lingo. He said, I think I am quite certain that I led other people to Jesus through speaking to them about Jesus and I wasn't a believer myself. And at the age of 21, he was sitting on his couch with a gun at his head ready to take his own life because of the condition of his life. And just then his roommate, who worked for his father, so he's in business with his father, and the only time that he has ever been sent home by his father, early, for no reason, with pay, was that day. And he walked through the door, just as Jay was about to take his own life. And now, all these years later, he ministers to sports teams, he leads people to Christ on death row. And he says, I'm a nobody. And God chose to pick me. I don't know why, but he did. God decides where you fit. And if you're a person who doesn't believe, number two, that you belong in the body, then you're probably struggling with where you fit. And you certainly don't think you fit anywhere important. And that's a lie. That's a lie. To keep you sidelined in the body of Christ. You see, as we live out this new identity, as we seek to live this new life, as we understand that all things are new, living as a child of God, we need to recognize that we gather because it's in so doing that we become more like Christ, number one. Number two, we gather... Because everyone belongs. Number three, because God decides where you fit. And then number four, God uses all in the body of Christ. God uses all. Ephesians 4.16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love those that lacked honor, those that are less seemly, those who aren't high profile. From the human perspective, God greatly values. God greatly values. 1 Corinthians 12, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. And it is important for you to understand today that you are indispensable in the body of Christ. Not because you are in and of yourselves, but because God says you are. Because he says you are. Most of you know that I, my family and I spent a good long time at McLean Bible Church, and one of the things that you are probably aware of is that Lon and Brenda Solomon have a disabled daughter named Jill. Jill was born perfectly normal. She was growing normally, and around the age of two, she, she came to be with a severe seizure disorder. Severe, having up to hundreds of seizures in a given day. Now Jill is, in, is an adult. She's in her 20s. And she still has the mental capacity of a two-year-old. But out of that journey, Jill's house was born, which is a respite center 
down in Tyson's Corner for families with kids with disabilities. And if you don't have a child with a disability, then you have a difficult time understanding the incredible struggle living day in and day out with a child that needs 24-7 care. And Jill's house provides an opportunity for these kids to come and receive quality, amazing care and therapies so that their parents can, I don't know, have a date for the first time in a decade. I don't know, but it seems to me that when Jill gets to heaven and she's whole, God's going to talk to her about the amazing role that she played in the care and evangelism of many, many families with kids with disabilities. Because people of all religions and backgrounds come to Jill's house with their kids. doesn't matter where you come from or what, you, what religion you are. And many of them from other world religions find Jesus there. Don't tell me what God can and cannot do. Don't tell me who he's willing to use and not use. Because of growing up at McLean Bible Church, my children are very comfortable around kids with special needs. It's challenging. If you're not used to that, you know, many people with special needs are, they're they're loud and they're kind of messy and uh, disruptive. I remember my daughter when she was in middle school. And you know, middle school is that it's, I want you to ask for a show of hands, but my personal kind of poll of most people is that middle school was pretty horrible for most of us. Like very few of us actually liked middle school. It's just a difficult time of life for a lot of reasons. And one of them is that we're all very self-conscious, right? So the last thing you want to do when you're in middle school is to be at a pl- in connection where there's a situation that's disruptive and you know and so forth and special needs kids are like that. And in Natalie's middle school there were there were a set of identical twins who had down syndrome. And they were loud and you know. And they loved Natalie because Natalie loved them. She wasn't uncomfortable with this. And they had a nickname for her. No idea where this came from. But their nickname for her was Paparazzi. (laughs) But to my little girl, those little girls mattered. Those little girls mattered. They had a place. Everybody has a place. And if you or somebody you know has a child with disabilities, you know how often those children are a gift and a blessing in the midst of the difficulties. Because in the economy of God, everybody has a place. Everybody has a place. And everybody has a use. You fit no matter what. Christ's likeness occurs in community. That's why we gather. You belong in the body of Christ, and that's why we gather. God decides where you fit, because it's important, and that's why we gather. God uses all in the body of Christ, and that's why we gather. And so we land on the mandate, and I'm just going to mention it for today, and then we're going to pick it up next week.
It's the passage that we read earlier in our time together at the top of the hour out of Hebrews chapter 10. It says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together. Oh, no, no. As some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And it has gotten harder and harder. And some people, they're still struggling. They're concerned. They're COVID concerns and all of this and fearful of gathering. And next week, we're going to talk about some of those hindrances and we're going to talk about some of the solutions. Because we need to work hard against the enemy's plan. I also want to recommend to you a sermon that Pastor Mike preached in May of, of uh, 2019 called Gathered and Scattered, God's Design for the Church out of Acts chapter 2. And we're going to touch on that next week. Excellent sermon. I encourage you to go back and listen to it. We are called to gather. It is part of how we live out knowing Christ and making him known. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love for us, God. Thank you that you, in your divine wisdom, have seen fit to make us your temple, your dwelling place. And then, God, you have seen fit to make us your body, that which you use for your purposes in this world. First, internally for us to be who you want us to be, and then for the world that we might be your instrument. Lord God, I pray, help us as we seek to understand how we can gather, as we seek to live out what it means, all things new, living as a child of God in this time in history. Father, and I pray for any who are with us today who don't know Jesus, who've never come to the point where they've said, I'm a sinner. I need to know. I need to have a savior. I need to be rescued from my sin. I can't do it on my own. I'm, I'm tired of trying to live in such a way in this performance treadmill to be justified before God. God, I pray that they would simply receive the payment that Jesus made for them. Lord, that, that they can then also become part of the gathering part of your temple, part of your body, to discover as they grow and move forward what their part is, how it is that in this gathering they have a place. Father, thank you for our time together. We pray all these things in your great name. Amen.